Hello, everyone, and welcome to Modern Love. We have a very special show today with the largest selling, biggest, oh my God, I don't have enough words to describe how many books Dr. John Gray has sold around the world. And over the last 20 years, he has taught us all how we are different giving us new insights always into Mars and Venus, men and women. And he's fostering stronger relationships through better communication. His landmark work, everybody knows, Mars, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. There was a television show. I was on that show several times with Sybil Shepherd back in the day. It sold millions upon millions of copies. And it's actually changed our conversation about love and relationships. Ever the pioneer, John says we need more than ever a new way to communicate, new skills, and to understand our differences so we can build healthy relationships. We are so happy to welcome Dr. John Gray, and he's going to talk with us today about his new book, Staying Focused in a Hyper World. Okay, John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Brenda. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's an absolute pleasure for me. We've had the honor of having you here in our classroom, our Modern Love Academy in San Francisco, and I will never forget having a newlywed couple here literally the day after their wedding because they wanted to be with you and learn everything they could about starting their marriage off in a really positive way. And you said to them the most important thing was for the husband to be able to listen to his wife's feelings. And they did a live demo with you in which she finally got to what she was really feeling about starting this new life, and she was in tears. And you said to him, just hold her. And that was a turning point for them. They're doing so well. I want you to know that. Well, they have great guidance and coaching with you as well, but thank you for that acknowledgement. They were a very special couple. Now, John, you have been on quite a journey, always staying on the cutting edge of research, and you've gone from Mars and Venus to Mars on ice, Venus on fire, helping people to understand more of the biological and physiological aspects of love. And everyone, listen carefully, because if you think that what's going on inside your body does not affect your relationship, very shortly, John is going to help you understand that it has everything to do. So, John, tell us a little bit about the evolution of your work, and then we're going to talk about this wonderful new book you've got. Well, Brenda, uh, ironically, even before I became well-known with Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, uh, for many, many years, uh, for nine years, I was the personal assistant to the Maharishi of Transcendental Meditation, and was a teacher of meditation and taught teachers of meditation. So I love in your website how you focus that people should also learn how to find that happiness within as a foundation for happiness in their relationships. And I'm kind of like a living example of that because I really dedicated myself to finding inner happiness first before I embarked in getting married and having serious intimate relationships. So, John, I, I never was, knew that about you. That yeah, you worked with the Maharishi? Oh, I was goodness. his personal assistant. It was, 
I taught his teacher training programs uh, when I got older. It was a big part of my life was meditation. And, you know, when you when you live and breathe something, after a while you feel you want to move on and teach something else. So I, I did that. But sort of the, the new adventure for me after, in a sense, mastering meditation and finding that inner peace was to share love. And that was a whole new series of obstacles and challenges. But that foundation allowed me to do it in a way that was non-judgmental. You see, what when we're feeling empty inside, then we tend to get caught in right and wrong. Well, you shouldn't have said that. You should do this. Well, why didn't you do that? As opposed to when you have a sense of fullness, there's a greater sense of generosity, uh, which gives you a place of empathy and understanding. Mm. So what you're saying is taking the time to cultivate ourselves on the inside, cultivate, I love that word you used, fullness. It gives us a chance to give from our fullness to our partners. That That's absolutely beautiful, John, and it makes sense. Everybody think about it. It makes complete sense. My grandmother used to have this saying, my granny was from the South, John, and she would say, don't go to a dry well looking for water. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Come from a full well, and then you have the potential to bring out the best in your partner. And that's what I saw the dynamic was, is that in my marriage and with Bonnie, we've been married now 30 years, and I have the power within me to pull out the worst in her. I have the power to pull out the best in her. And that's such a wonderful perspective to have in a relationship because you can never feel like a victim. You can shift gears and go, okay, now what did I say? What did I do? How could I have done that differently? Is there? Do I have the potential to bring that out in her? And, you know, when you have that idea, then some people say, well, does that mean I should just stay in any relationship? And I say, well, no. You have to really look, sincerely look, am I contributing to the problem or am I contributing to the problem by staying with someone that I don't feel I can give them what they need? But it comes to a sense of ultimate accountability for the results in our life. And that comes when we're feeling that fullness inside. Wow. So, John, of course my mind goes immediately to when you say, I have the power to pull out the best in my partner I have the power to pull out the worst. You know, I'm I'm working with couples every day, just as you are in, in, in seminars, et cetera. And I'm, I'm actually working with a couple right now where they're in such serious trouble because of infidelity. Would you say that one partner has pulled out the infidelity? Or what would you say to a couple struggling with an issue like that right now? Well, in that particular issue, that's a much bigger issue for people. You know, there's issues here. When there's infidelity, there was a woman who wrote a book, and the title of her book was My Husband's Affair Was the Greatest Thing That Ever Happened. Because mm-hmm. what it did is it brought up the opportunity that they were both unhappy in the relationship. And in that situation, you look at something which is clearly your partner's mistake. It's their problem, either their immaturity, their lack of knowledge, or their own gave an unhealthy relationship, an unhappy relationship. But there's a way of looking at that. It's not saying, okay, keep doing that, but that's a mistake that deserves to be forgiven if someone is sincere and wanting to make an adjustment and change. And that process of learning how to forgive and how to, uh, if it's a man who had the affair, how to be accountable and apologize and be present to help the healing process occur. Because there is that sense of that we all have to sort of – 
wake up one day and realize that life is not perfect. Mm. You know, the the romantic feeling that we have in the beginning is, oh, everything's going to be perfect. And, and real love is being able to see the good in someone even after they've made mistakes and have find the hope and the ability to find the potential to grow towards more and more as opposed to imagine that everything is perfect the way it is. And it is perfect in one sense, and that we're perfectly imperfect to give us the challenges <laughs> to grow perfectly in Perfectly imperfect. I love that. Yeah, we certainly are perfectly imperfect, John. And, you know, it breaks my heart when I see couples struggling with, you know, and as you said, if a person makes a mistake, they're sincere, they want to move on, forgiveness and a lot of hard work can turn a marriage around. And we actually have a question. We ask people to give us questions ahead of time knowing we'd have the opportunity. And this question came in from a young woman. She says, I'm 25 years old. What are the top three ways to make up with my partner when we have a fight? I love that question. Uh, Make up rather than break up. It, it's always the, the place to realize that apologies can work. Uh, and when you apologize to your partner, you're basically saying, you know, I love you, I care about you, and I didn't mean to do it, do something that would have this effect on you. And I see it's had that effect, and I'm wanting to make an adjustment within myself. The problem for couples is when somebody apologizes, they often assume that the other person is going to go, oh, okay, great, that's fine. Uh, that's not always the case. The apology opens the door for someone to then feel fully feel the resentment or the anger or the hurt that they felt. So you don't look for an immediate response always. Sometimes you do. Gee, honey, I'm sorry. She says, it's okay. Well, that's a really loving response. If, you, if it's authentic and true, that's when your heart is full. You can forgive mistakes. That's an important point. When your heart is full, you can forgive mistakes. Mm. When your heart is empty then when people make a mistake, you feel that I can't get what I need to be happy until you change. So I'm waiting for you to apology, for an apology that you will change, or I'm waiting for behavior to change over time so I can rebuild my trust. And this now, John, is one... isn't that hard to do? I get the fullness piece because it says I need to fill myself up so I have the capacity to forgive, to accept your imperfections, to be with you even when you have screwed up and hurt my feelings and dropped the ball. Now, the other side I'm curious about, what if the other person who's made the mistakes, who's been unfaithful or who's done something hurtful, lacks the capacity to have empathy for what it's like to be on the receiving end of deeply hurtful behavior uh i want to get to that but first i want to keep pointing out when we when we take an extreme like an affair in most cases when people have affairs there's a hundred things that happened before that which were not forgiven they were overlooked there was denial or they were forgiven in a fake way which is i'm going to pretend like that's okay but there's a resentment that builds up inside so quite often, you know, we can focus on something really big. It's kind of like, well, how do we tear down that? How do we build a skyscraper? When the real solution for relationships today comes back to the question, how to make up rather than break up, when the little things happen. And that's what my focus always is, 
is we need to put the big stuff off to the side. And we need to learn first before we do algebra, we need to practice our addition tables and our subtraction tables and then our multiplication tables. And, you know, when I was a young therapist uh, 35 years ago, uh, I would talk to couples, okay, let's look at the biggest problem and let's analyze it. Let's figure out how we're going to solve the biggest problem. And what I learned was let's put that to the side and let's start looking at how we got to the place where that big problem happened. Let's start with some basics first. And I don't put a lot of attention on trying to solve the big problem, which often becomes irreconcilable. But what I do is I help people realize the, the little mistakes we're making every day and how we get our feelings hurt, how we feel ignored, how we feel taken for granted, how we don't feel acknowledged. And what you just said as well, which is when we don't feel empathy, because let's say my wife is upset about something. She says, you didn't do this and this. And I say, oh, well, I'll do it tomorrow. Now, there's no empathy there, and that's what she's looking for. And it's easy to say, gee, he doesn't feel empathy. He has a problem. But from my point of view, how can he have empathy if she doesn't actually show her, him her feelings in a way that doesn't attack him? No one can hear feelings, upset feelings, if someone's feeling defensive. You know, here when 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 we are under stress, and certainly we'll take it from the man's point of view here for a moment, but it's equally true for women in a different way, but it's true. And that if someone criticizes me, there's a, particularly when someone is very close to me, like my wife or my children, if it's a stranger, it doesn't have that big of an effect on me because we're not so connected. But when your heart is open to someone and then they criticize you, this is like it affects you much more, and that is a stressor. And when we experience stress, there's a biological reaction that occurs in the brain whereas blood flow stops going to the prefrontal cortex, that's the front of the brain, and it goes to the back of the brain, the primitive part of the brain, oh. where, we're, where we're incapable of empathy. Now, let me say that again. When a person is feeling defensive, they're feeling criticized, they're feeling blamed, they're feeling threatened, they're feeling misunderstood, they're feeling attacked, any of those kinds of things, whether you're attacking or not, if they feel that way, they can no longer experience empathy. It's not possible. Empathy comes from the prefrontal cortex, which is going to be able to say, oh, you have pain, you have feeling outside of me, to understand a different perspective. Because quite often, particularly between men and women, many of the things that upset a woman don't upset a man as much. And things that would upset a man don't upset a woman as much. Give an so, example of a couple of those things, Sean. Okay, here's an example. My wife says to me, "Well, John, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't have said that the other day when we were talking to the people." Now, if on that day I go, "Wait, wait a second. What do you mean I shouldn't have said that?" A man will tend to be much more sensitive, reactive, defensive when you tell him that he's done something wrong or you presume to be like a mother and tell him what he should do differently. If he's not asking for your advice, don't give it. Now, a woman's sensitivities will tend to be in a different area to a much greater extent. You know, if I'm talking to my wife and I say to her, oh, you should tell him this, shouldn't tell him that, she might be very open to that. But if I say something to her like, well, you shouldn't be upset about that, boom, I've just hit a nerve where women become extremely defensive, they feel hurt, they feel uh, dismissed, they feel put down, they feel misunderstood, they feel hurt. They feel 
not connected, that I don't want to connect with you if you tell me that I shouldn't feel what I feel. Or a man, a woman might be upset, oh, I'm scared about that. And a man just chuckles and says, well, that's ridiculous, honey. There's nothing to worry about. And kabang, what he doesn't know is he punched her in the stomach. Oh, you don't, yes. See, we, yes. we, if you say to a man, if a man says, oh, I'm, I'm worried about this, I'm scared, and you say, oh, don't worry about it. You can handle it. I believe in you. That's like a compliment. Right, exactly. So the compliment for the man can be an insult for a woman, and inadvertently this is where you started really helping people to understand men and women do need things that are different, do feel differently. Now, John, I'm going to back you up for a minute and because we, I we know I interrupted you on something. No, 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 you, you are wonderful, and, and we react to things differently, and when we react in a defensive way, that's what we just have to understand, that when your partner's reacting in a defensive way, you have to stop what you're doing. You're bringing out the worst in them. Uh, now, you can say, well, they're misinterpreting me. Okay, well, that's true, but still... If you, you're a victim then, you can go, is there a way I can adjust my approach so I don't create that defensiveness? For example, yeah. if you want to say, uh, you should do this differently, you can say, you know, the other day when you were talking to someone else, I would have done that a little differently. Are you interested in my perspective? Boom. And then what you get is yes or you get no. And if you get no, let it go. You're not his mother. You're not his parent. That's what we have to keep remembering as well. So often women will say to me, you know, I feel like I have to tell him everything. No, you don't have to tell him everything. <laughs> he, he makes me his mother. I say, no, <laughs> you choose that role. You know, we, we unconsciously feel that we have to be in control, and everybody needs to feel in control of their life to a certain extent, but we don't have to be in control of our partners. Exactly. So let's say your partner is, is being mean. And and saying mean things, people do this. They don't realize how mean-sounding they can sound. And they say, they're raising your voice at you. And immediately, you tend to raise your voice back. This is what couples do. They just mirror each other, which is not what works. We have to keep coming back to, does that work? It never works. If we look at making up instead of breaking up, go back to any argument and quite often for most couples, one person started to raise their voice. And then now you raise your voice in response. As soon as you have to raise your voice, you're in fight or flight. Blood flow is going to the back part of the brain. You're taking a stance where you're only going to be able to look at, uh, as a woman, I want my feelings validated. And for a man, he wants his behavior to be excusable and right. Yeah, we once that primitive part of the brain is triggered, you might as well be a lion in the grass in terms of the response. Yes, that yes. Just going to go off. Now, John, and whatever let me you're ask doing you, at that point will not work. That's what I have to keep giving couples options. But who would have thought, you know, a woman getting upset at you, and in, as a man, when you disagree with what she's saying, you feel it might be irrational, you might feel she's overreacting, whatever your your belief is, don't say that. She's a person. She needs to express herself and say, okay, well, let me hear you. I want to understand this better, and I want to understand this better. And realize that she is talking in a way to understand herself better. You see, she's not going to just put it out there all in nice prose, all figured out with all semicolons and periods and everything makes sense. It's like as a writer, you know, as a writer you've written, we have to write something, then we rewrite it, and we edit it, and we work it out. It's a journey to get to clarity. So one of the and you're asking men to be patient with that yes, process. Yes, yes. 
just okay. And and, 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 and what and then sometimes they need metaphors to help yes. with this. And one is is if you think of a woman as Mother Earth, she's the weather. <laughs> now the sun, <laughs> which is her love for you, is shining all the time. But sometimes the clouds get in the way. Sometimes there's lightning. Sometimes there's rain. Just be patient. Your your life is not in danger. Know that it will pass. But most men don't have the experience that it will pass because they unknowingly make it worse. Because when somebody's upset, if you resist their upset, you're trying to change them from being upset, you're going to make the upset last longer and longer and longer. It is our own resistance to our partner's natural reactions to life that cause those reactions to last longer. For example, my wife grew up in a family where her mother was, you know, not really uh, that functional, and she was very disapproving. Uh, she just, her reaction to everything was disapproval. No one could ever be enough for her. And she was a very unhappy lady to a great extent. And mm-hmm. Too bad. So, yeah, and it's too bad. So what I have learned with my lovely wife that I love and adore is that quite often when I don't fit her expectations, her initial automatic reaction is a look of disapproval and sometimes the comment of disapproval. And I'm chuckling here because I have finally figured this out and I don't take it personally. I realize this is just a part of her and it may never go away. You know, my ah. therapist friends all want to say, well, she should look at her childhood issues and talk to her mother and handle And I say, you know, that if she wants to do that, that's fine. But from my point of view, I can love her and I can be in a wonderful relationship with her and realize that when she experiences this initial reaction of disapproval, if I don't react back by disapproving of her disapproval, it passes very quickly, and she comes back to this most accepting and appreciative person. Ah, so you give her a moment to get past it. Wow. Now that takes a lot of self-control. It does. It takes it a takes lot of emotional maturity. Maturity and, and probably wisdom. some of that wisdom is the word you just put on the table. I'm about to say the wisdom you built up through your meditation, through your inner work with yourself. Now, John, would you finish? You started to give this young woman who wrote to us her question about the three ways to make up. You said make up is better than break up. You said apology. And what were the other two things you would suggest? You okay. mentioned forgiveness, apology. They're, they're the yin and the yang. It's the apology and the forgiveness. And quite mm-hmm. often to find forgiveness, it's important that we share what's our emotions with somebody that we're not upset with. That's the whole value of coaching and therapy or having good friends who you can be vulnerable with. If she is she or he is upset with their partner, to find forgiveness, it's a journey. We can't always just go, oh, you didn't mean to do that. All right, I forgive you. There's Once a wound has happened, it's like a blow. Something happens that's unexpected. It's a shock. It's a disappointment. It's like somebody punches you. There's going to be a bruise. The bruise just doesn't go away right away. It needs to go through a process of healing, so it will take time. So we have to, one is we have to apologize, not expecting an immediate response. Two is if you are able to listen to your partner's feelings, do so. If the partner, and the third thing is if the partner who needs to forgive is unable to share their feelings, 
in a with the intent to forgive. Okay, that's to be real clear, you know, because there is a difference, which is I want to talk to you about how I feel because I'm mad at you, and I want to talk to you how I feel because I want to get to the place of forgiveness because mm. I love you. That Those are two different difference. realities. Yeah, you know, there's a place where I'm just upset with you and I want you to change. I want you to feel bad. Now, if your intent is to change someone or feel bad, you're only going to get a defensive response, and therefore they're incapable of feeling that empathy, which will allow real change to take place. Mm -hmm. And it's like a Zen Cohen kind of a thing, which is if you give up trying to change your partner and be authentic, your partner will change. But if you express your upset feelings with the intent that I want you to change, I'm going to intensify this to show you this is a big problem, and I want you to feel bad, uh, then it's harder, we'll put it this way, it's much harder for a person to hear that. Yeah, because you're in punishment mode. So the three steps then are be ready, apologize if you hurt your partner, work on the journey. And I like it. You said journey of forgiveness. Share your feelings with a neutral person to get it all out and then share let's say, the softer version, working toward forgiveness with your partner. So that's for the person who wrote to us. Now we have another question. How do you know? Whoa, this is an interesting one. Well, let, let me How add do, one more to that sure. one. Sure. Really whenever, whenever there's a upset between my wife and I, we immediately take a t- time out. That's the first thing. We don't talk right away. You know, the, you, you heard me at the expo uh, the other night, and I was talking yes. on, and I mentioned, uh-oh, I just let two hours. I talked for four hours. I thought it was two hours, so I didn't call my wife and let her know I wasn't coming for dinner. So when I came home, she was very upset with me. So she just said, I don't want to talk about it. We'll talk tomorrow. And she just went to her room. Now, that a separate room. That was very smart of her because she saw that I can't even tell you what I feel without sounding like you're a bad guy. Yeah. So I need yeah. to work through my stuff first, and that's always the consideration. One is you can talk to somebody who, without your partner being there who's neutral. Then you're able just to share your feelings, and not only is someone able to empathize with you, but you're, able, uh, you're developing a new skill, which is how can I share my feelings without the intention to change someone? Because when you're sharing your feelings, upset feelings, negative emotions, with someone that you're not upset with, you're not trying to change that person. And so you're learning the difference between sharing and complaining or attacking. See, to share with you is to just talk about something that happened to me. Another complaining is to go to the person that disappointed me and share with them. <laughs> right, exactly. So you've got actually one more step. First to time out, get a grip. Let yourself calm down, get all those hormones that are flooding your system and directing blood flow to the primitive part. Let all that settle down, think it through, then go back into a healthier process. So here's another question. Again, this is coming in. We've got a young audience saying, how do you know that you're not just staying for the sex? (laughs) <laughs> I wonder if it's a man or woman saying that. <laughs> uh, well, this did come in from a man. <laughs> <laughs> that would typically be more, not that there wouldn't be some women, but typically, guys, how do you know if you're just staying for the sex? It's a good reason to stay. It's a good <laughs> motivator. It's a built-in motivator for men to do what it takes to make a relationship work. Because uh, clearly, if the sex wasn't happening, you'd be out of there. 
So I always look at a man's, uh, men typically have, well, men have 30 times more testosterone than your average woman, and testosterone causes a much greater need to experience sex. Uh, uh, It's just not that women can't enjoy sex, don't love sex, and so forth. It's just sort of a a throbbing need for men (laughs) that goes off at unpredictable times, and you have to learn to manage that. Uh, again, I think that was one of the secrets of my success in my marriage, which is that I, as a young, uh, in my 20s, learned to manage that very effectively because I was a celibate monk. I was able to oh channel God. that energy into I'll long hours. I'll say you managed it in your yeah. 20s. In my celibacy. 20s. I, well, I, it's like <laughs> dedicating the energy. It's just an energy source. And and. I dedicated it towards my spiritual practice. So, you know, I would meditate 15 hours a day in my last three years of that journey because it was just so much energy and that was building up. That was my channel through which it would flow as opposed to in a relationship with a woman. So I saw the value as well being married, of being in a monogamous relationship, is that you learn to control that energy and direct it with love as opposed to just letting it spray out anywhere uh, and wasting that energy. So I have a you know, whole message about the reasonableness of being a monogamous relationship. Well, that's a very interesting image, having it spray out anywhere, but we're going to let that go, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like who's in control here if I'm just going right. to you know, so have sex us. with whoever's going to have sex with me or is it going to be with someone that I love? Ah. And when I'm not feeling sexual desire for someone that I love, uh, being responsible to work through my issues so I can feel it again. Who so many is in people... control here? That is a very interesting question. Who is in control? So, John, you have... Is it the back part of your brain or oh, is it the front part of your brain? That's right. The primitive you or the evolved you. Now, you have moved from your stance... because I don't think you've moved from it. Let me say it this way. You have always said good relationships don't require hard work and sacrifice. Couples shouldn't have to work on relationships at all. You say compromise is one of the worst things you can do because compromise can cause relationship failure. Now, why do you say that? Well, I don't know if I'm being quoted exactly right. It's, it, you know, I think you should work on your relationship just like you work go to a job. It shouldn't be a struggle for you, but it is going to be a struggle for many people until they have an education about how to make it work. Now, my relationship with my wife now is effortless, but it wasn't always that way. I have learned how to make it that way. So it is a, working for me is effortless as well because I have developed a skill. But all skills take patience and persistence and hard work. And often the attitude that some some people have, which is, oh, everything should just be automatic and easy, is a very destructive attitude in a relationship. Ah. And when it, when it comes to compromise, I think every relationship requires compromise, but it needs to be a form of compromise where you don't have to give up your authenticity. And that's, well, what does that mean? That's a complicated concept. Yeah, that but, is complicated. What do you mean by authenticity? Not giving up your authenticity. Exactly. For example, uh, when I drive my, and we'll take simple examples of this. My wife um, does not like to drive fast, and I am a race car driver. Okay, <laughs> I am a, a excellent driver and never been in an accident. I don't get tickets. I'm, but at the same time, I have a race car, and I love to drive fast. And uh, here's here's my wife who who 
basically no one ever passes me on the freeway. Never been passed, basically, when I'm driving alone. So, But when I'm driving with my wife, she doesn't want me in the fast lane, and it's very uncomfortable for me to have cars passing me. But for her, it's very uncomfortable for me passing everybody else. Oh, now how do you handle that? What's the compromise? Now, I did exaggerate that whole story just a little bit to make the point, okay, because I don't drive that fast, but there was a time when I did. (laughs) (laughs) Now the truth comes out. Well, well, I just, you know, the, the... Uh, To me, going to speed limit, I go to speed limit, which is 10 miles over whatever the speed limit is. That's what they give you. So I'm very careful to not get tickets and so forth. And I I do drive in an assertive way. As you know, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna change lanes, I speed up. We got the picture, John. Okay, we got the picture. You'll be the guy streaking past us, but you're being careful. (laughs) But you're being careful. And when people do streak past us, she says, she says. I'll say, you know, that's how I drive. She says, I know, with that little reaction of disapproval. And then I let it go. It's just to me. Right. But here's the compromise, okay? It all started with with the yellow light. Okay, when I see a yellow light, I speed up. When she sees a yellow light, she slows down and stops. So now when I'm driving her, when I drive, I speed up and go through yellow lights. When I drive, I go in the fast lane. But if I'm driving her, which I'm not driving her all the time, but when I'm driving her, I slow down and stop at yellow lights. I then reach over and touch her on the thigh. And I say, that was for you. And she says, I know, and I really appreciate it. (laughs) Now just take that in. What just happened? She's not coming from a place of, well, you should stop at yellow lights. But she's coming from a place of, you're taking me into consideration, and I really appreciate that. Yes, yes. And you're able, as the evolved mature person you are to say her needs matter i want her to be happy that's right so i mean this you is, are uh, winning in your marriage with her and i i think that's beautiful and so the <laughs> compromise there is when i'm driving her i adjust my style it doesn't mean i have to give up my style it means when i'm taking care of her i do it in a way that works for her yes and, and, now john that might lead us to a question that we have here uh this person wants to know what are the most common reasons that relationships fail? And you're talking about taking your wife into consideration, I think might be a lead into that question. Well, I, you know, I can say a million different things for that answer, but let me say something that comes to mind. The most common reason relationships fail is that people don't understand the little ways, the little mistakes they make to distance themselves from their partner, the the feeling misunderstood, the little ways that we sabotage our relationships, and there's lots of little ways we do it. Then it turns into big problems, which are very difficult to solve. But when you look at, we break the problem down into all the little things, that the little mistakes we make that most people are not aware of because they don't understand the basic sensitivities of men and women are unique and different. And then add to that the basic sensitivities of your partner who has a history. So I've given you example today, for example, of women don't like someone telling them not to feel what they feel. Men don't like someone giving unsolicited advice. Those are two different sensitivities, which there may be a blend there of those. those but those are two very clear yes. differences. Yes. Now, I also talked about my wife has this reaction of disapproval. And I realized that when I disapprove of her reaction of disapproval, I lock her into that place as opposed to letting the cloud pass 
and a few minutes later if I just do something and she will respond with love and appreciation. You sort of change the subject and suddenly that disapproval is like just a water off her back. It's we who tend to make things worse in our relationships and that is the thing I started out with which is the most important mistake couples make is we blame our partners rather than take responsibility for how we contribute to the problems in a relationship. So it comes back to, I've got to take responsibility for my part. And this is kind of like housekeeping. You've got to sweep the dust, wash the dishes, keep the place picked up, or pretty soon you're going to live in a place that is unlivable. I hear you saying, let's do the little things every day on a constant basis. So everyone, take notes here. The master... The love master himself, John Gray, is giving us some solid advice. And, John, that's kind of part one of our time together. Part two here is I would love to have you tell us about your new book. This is so interesting to me because you went from in Mars on ice, Venus on fire, giving us a very, very strong, in-depth look at how hormones play a part in relationships. And in your new book, which focuses on, of all things, ADHD, you're talking about staying focused in a hyper world. And, of course, we want to hear about that and how does that come home in relationships. So part two with John Gray. Let's go. Well, we move into the next stage, which is, There's a phenomenon which we're experiencing today which is very real, and it's been diagnosed in the medical realm as attention deficit disorder. It's a very misunderstood idea because you take a child who's considered to be hyperactive, can't stay still, but put them in front of a video game and they'll stay still for hours and hours and hours. What's happening with that particular child is the brain is now changing due to our hyperstimulation of our society. That can be lots of television, that can be big screens, that can be video games, that can be Facebook, that can be a lot of electronic stimulation changes the brain. In a similar way, a lot of carbohydrate, processed carbohydrates, sugar, for example, products that have sugar added to them, even juice does this. Uh, which is, again, processed. You've taken all the fiber out of it, and now you're left with grape juice or orange juice. All of these things are hyperstimulants. And if we look at under a brain scan, the same part of the brain is being overstimulated as if you were taking cocaine. And so we are a society which is addicted to hyperstimulation. Now, what that means is when you're addicted to hyperstimulation, it means I can only be happy if I'm getting a higher level of stimulation. Now, stimulation could be give me an award. That stimulates me. Uh, tell me I'm a wonderful person. That stimulates me. Give me sugar. That stim- Give me a cookie. I want another one and another one. What happens when you overstimulate is that normal stimulation, like I'm so happy to see you, doesn't have any effect at all. Normal stimulation of, look, Mom, I did my homework, and she smiles, and you feel proud of yourself. That would be normal stimulation. It doesn't have the same impact of satisfaction. You suddenly need hyperstimulation. Now, does this extend also, John, into the realm of, because, of course, my mind immediately goes to people who 
suffer from addictions. And it's most exactly of those addictions, the same, the sex same phenomenon. Gambling, uh, any of those addictions that trigger a release of adrenaline, are we looking at that same overstimulation? Yeah, well, they're actually stimulating dopamine, which, if you're under stress, will convert into adrenaline. But so you're getting both of those things. When you get a high dopamine stimulation, you pulled. What happens is, let's go with gambling. You're just sitting there at a machine and you're pulling that handle, and you're excited and interested because one time it went off or you saw it go off. So the brain is looking forward to it happening again and again and again. And mm-hmm. you you're, you can't be happy walking away. Mm-hmm. You're dependent. Mm-hmm. Your happiness, your aliveness depends upon hyperstimulation or the expectation of hyperstimulation. So often when couples are falling in love, we can look at this phenomenon in children, but it's happening at all stages of life, and it's interfering with adult relationships. The idea of falling in love is a hyperdopamine experience. So what makes it a hyperdopamine experience is our fantasy that I'm with this perfect person. So as a result, just like when one cookie if you're addicted to sugar, one cookie is not enough. You have to eat another and another and another. So you're and saying another. people might go find the next new wonderful person, then the next new wonderful person, or in the case of you know somebody who has chronic affairs or, or chronic. Well, uh, let me let me just betrayal. make it even less extreme. Yeah. It's just simply we we are addicted to high expectations, to fantasy, and as reality sets in, our partner bores us. Is that we need that rush of newness. One of the things that stimulates dopamine is newness. Also sugar does, of course, and I mentioned the the digital stimulation. Uh, Those are just a few examples, but those are what's happening in our lives. Being in a hurry, drama, danger. Danger stimulates this brain chemical dopamine. So people can get addicted to danger, pornography, People get addicted to pornography, and then when they, which is fantasy, it's all fantasy. And then when you're with a real person, a real person doesn't turn you on. Right. A real person loses their ability to turn you on after being with them a few times, because newness goes away, reality sets in, and fantasy produces a much, much higher level of dopamine stimulation. And when you you know, a couples, you know, lots of young men today are just not being turned on to their partners more than once or twice. Mm-hmm. And women as well. They're all excited and then suddenly it goes away. They feel disappointed and that relationship becomes flat. This is a brain change that's been happening due to our lifestyle habits of too much electronic stimulation, too much carbohydrate junk food are two of the major causes and also rushing around in our lives with too much to do. Yeah, there is so much rushing around with too much to do, absolutely. And, John, when that dopamine stimulation occurs, can you just talk for a moment, how does that impact, say, high levels of stress? Does that counteract stress? Or is it just, this makes me feel better temporarily, I'll keep doing it? Well, you can have uh, you can have the pleasure of stress. It makes stress pleasurable, basically. When dopamine levels go up, two things can happen. If you're feeling danger, dopamine will convert into adrenaline. And then if you don't work out the adrenaline, then it turns into the stress hormone cortisol. 
So there is a process here. And once cortisol goes up, it doesn't go down very quickly. It stays chronically there. Mm. And that's one of the bigger reasons for our health issues. It also, it's kind of like when your resentment, once resentment occurs, it doesn't just disappear. It stays there. And that's a phenomenon of elevated cortisol. You basically don't feel safe to open up to someone and on a biological level, your cortisol levels are chronically that elevated. That is so interesting because, as you know, one of the cornerstones for people to get out of addiction is to go to a 12-step program. And over and over and over, every program says resentment will cause you to relapse. You just explained to me, for the first time I understand, why. Because chemically, resentment is producing cortisol. And, of course, if you're an addict, you're going to want to use whatever your behavior or your substance is to get rid of that feeling of stress. And just as resentment causes elevated cortisol, elevated cortisol holds us locked into resentment. See, there's... there's so it's a vicious know, cycle. It's a vicious cycle. It's the old ah. Greek saying, as in the mind, so in the body, but as in the body, so in the mind. And that's where I've gone into the subtitle of the new book, which is Natural Solutions for ADHD, Memory, and Brain Performance. Because what happens is that because one of the things that's overstimulating our brain is these junk foods. Right. Junk foods, they've taken the fiber out of it. You've taken the cofactors out of sugar. And what happens then when your body burns the, the sugar or the glucose, it depletes the body of necessary minerals. So our meals are depleting us rather than providing the nutrition we need to, uh, you know, for the brain to recover. So we may be eating a lot of food, but at the same time we could be starving. You know, this is something uh, I recently dealt with a, a woman on the Dr. Oz show where it was so, she was 300 pounds, but it was clear she was starving herself because she was eating nothing but junk. Nothing and, but junk. And, and not only just starving herself, but depleting herself of necessary minerals. Let's take sugar, for example. One of the major sources of sugar is beets. Beets uh, have tremendous amount of fiber. And if you were to eat beet, you wouldn't get that much sugar for one beet. And the sugar you would have would have a lot of fiber, which would cause it to slowly be absorbed by the body. That's the first thing, slowly rather than intensity. And the second thing is that beets are extremely high in minerals and particularly high in one mineral called lithium. And every time your body makes energy, you deplete your body of lithium. So what's happening today with our high-carbohydrate diet is massive depletion of lithium in the brain. Now, we know that for people with bipolar, lithium helps them. But what we have to do is recognize that little doses of lithium can go a long way, but not the kind doctors prescribe. So basically prescribe. you're saying most of us are running around and we're bipolar. Because we don't have any lithium left. To a certain extent, yes. This explains a lot, John. This explains yes. a lot. So what, if you could give us just a couple of solutions from your book, and everybody, I want you to run, not walk, and get this book. Because I know absolutely that nutrition is a cornerstone, food is medicine, and it makes all the difference if you are thinking about having a healthy love life if you're actually present and you're not caught up in that cycle of cortisol, resentment, etc. So, John, what are a couple of the things that you recommend that are really important? Well, one of the symptoms is of this high stimulation is being bored. 
Okay, so we need to spend time in nature and turn boredom into relaxation. Recognize we need to relax. We need to unplug at least one day a week where you're getting no computer stimulation, whatever, and you're eating no junk food carbohydrates. That's very important. You have to unplug. You have to, if you go high stimulation, you need to go to low stimulation. That's one thing. Two is you need to recognize there are proven studies showing that things like uh, supplementing with vitamin C and grapeseed extract will actually help take away the symptoms of overwhelm. Or for some people, you would take L-carnitine and omega-3 for those people. For some people, that is what takes away hypersensitivity. So we get things called hyper. Now say that again. It's L-carnitine? L-carnitine and omega-3 have been very helpful for people who have uh, uh, hypersensitivity any of these hyper things, actually. But what what I talk about in the book is the different kinds of hyper. Some children and adults are hyperactive. Others are hypersensitive. Others are hyper-distracted, disorganized. And others are hyper-perfectionist. They're compulsive. Everything has to be perfect, and therefore they're never satisfied. So see how that would affect a relationship. Oh, my God. You've got one person who's super (laughs) messy. You've got another person who's super demanding that things be perfect. You've got another person who's always busy. They can't relax. They're always trying to fix things, solve things, or talk about problems. And it's just hyper, hyper talking. Another person is is hyper hurt by things. They're always feeling like neglected and left out and feeling hurt and feeling misunderstood. And this is with children, but this also is happening with adults. It's just not wow. diagnosed as such. Wow. And, and when I talk about it, I have to, people say, but don't you think this is all big hype to sell drugs? I say, I'm not talking about giving drugs. I'm talking about being aware of a problem where we're being hyperstimulated, learning how to unplug, and providing the right nutrition to help the body heal. Wow. That is amazing, John. Absolutely amazing. Because at the end of the day, what you're saying is if we pay attention to nutrition, pay attention to doing things that give the body the opportunity to replenish itself, it's actually not only going to improve our health and our ability to focus, it's going to improve our love lives. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, for people who have, have been exposed to porn, for example, go on a porn fast. You know, this is... Go on a porn come, fast. Come, huh. Go on a porn fast. And people who work together all the time, go on a relationship fast where you're not spending a lot of time with your partner. We have to, like create diversity in our life you know we need to have time with people that we're not having sex with that we're not being intimate with and then we have to have time for our partners we have to have time for our work but friendships are not dependent upon work we need to have all kinds of areas of our life where we're being nurtured as opposed to getting hyper focused on one level one kind of stimulation and quite often women will focus all their dissatisfaction on their partner rather than focus on all the other ways that could be fulfilled in their life, and their partner is just one of the aspects of their life that brings fulfillment to them. So you're saying that for a healthy relationship, we really need to have your partner not be sort of the drug you're mainlining, but you need fulfillment, because you talked earlier about meditation and inner fulfillment. You talked about emotional maturity. And now we're saying hey, there's a formula here where we need to handle our brain chemistry by lowering sugar, 
getting out into nature, lowering our level of boredom, and turn it into relaxation because the rushing around phenomenon, John, I, I am guilty, my hand is raised, way too much to do on my plate, and I'm going to work on getting grounded. Now, we have a couple more questions. Can you take a couple more quick questions for us? Yes, I'll answer them quickly, too. Great. <laughs> okay. We have a question here that, that oh, here it is right here. It says, um, how do you find the ideal mate in this high-pressure society? It, you know, the best way to find a mate is the first thing is if you're needy and desperate, you're pushing that person away, you won't see them. The second thing is quite often when women are being hyper-stimulated with romance, they're imagining that the partner they meet is going to turn them on sexually. And quite often the partner that's right for you doesn't turn you on sexually, but is someone that's interesting to you and, and it makes you curious. Could could almost feel like, oh, this would be a nice friend. Let the romance gradually grow. Don't be in a hurry for it. Don't rush it. That's one of the things we do is we rush. The third thing I'll mention is... Put it out to your friends and realize that when people meet someone, it's usually always unexpected. It's a surprise, and it's by being in social settings. And you will find you follow your instincts of who you're interested in. But if your pattern has been, if you're a woman, and your pattern has been the men I'm sexually attracted to, never call back. Next time you're sexually attracted to a man, run the other direction. <laughs> Great advice, John. Really great advice. And I really want to say I'm I'm hearing that all of your advice is filling in what we call the four quadrants, body, emotions, mind, and spirit. So everyone, I invite you to listen to this radio program again. Of course, we're going to have it archived, John, where people can listen to it in perpetuity and get your wisdom. But I also encourage all of our listeners to build a library and build a library of material that you can go back to over and over again because we all need information, we need guidance, and God knows we need it in our love lives more than anywhere else. So Dr. John Gray, the author of the new book, Staying Focused, in a hyper world and staying focused on love is what we're all about here at Modern Love. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your experience, and your success in love. You and Bonnie are a great couple. I love seeing you guys together. Well, thank you so much, Brenda, and uh, thank you for this great show and the work you're doing because this is ultimately what the world needs more is for mommy and daddy to be happy and in love and children grow up in a safe, loving environment. That's what's going to make this world a better place. Wonderful. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Blessings. All right, everyone, thank you for being with us with Modern Love Radio. I'm your Modern Love doctor, Dr. Brenda Wade. Let's make it good. <laughs>